Welcome, fans of the Justice League universe. My name is Sam. In this podcast, Alessandro Maniscalco and I share our analysis of the DC films that are part of Warner Brothers' Justice League universe. Right now, we are focusing on Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice as we head toward the one-year anniversary of its release. We have a little special something planned for the anniversary on March 25th, and we want you to be a part of it, so be sure to stay tuned for an announcement at the end of this episode. The main content of this episode, though, is going to be our analysis of scenes 67 and 68 in BVS, which is the U.S. President's decision to hit Doomsday with a nuclear missile, and also Batman's decision to try to lure Doomsday to the kryptonite spear. We left off last episode with Superman flying Doomsday straight up into the upper atmosphere. At first, he is pushing Doomsday in the middle of the back, and he flies him above the cloud line. And later, Doomsday is able to fight back, and he twists and lands a solid punch on Superman. But Superman has fully developed flight skills and is able to regroup quickly and flies back up and punches Doomsday even further out towards space. He punches him multiple times and then ends up grabbing Doomsday by the head to try to continue to fly him up farther. So this is not an easy task, but Supes is managing to get it done. By the way, this is the third time we've seen Superman out in the upper atmosphere. The first time was back in Man of Steel during the joyous first flight scene that ends with him doing a flyby as an homage to the original Superman movie. Then, later in Man of Steel, he and Zod have their fight out in the thermosphere for a while, around the satellites, before they crash back down to Metropolis. So it was established early on that Superman's flight abilities extend into the upper atmosphere. But after the first flight, since then it hasn't really been a pleasant place for him to be. He ends up there when he's locked in life-or-death battles with supervillains. But I really like the look and feel of how they shot this first flight upward with Doomsday, Instead of shooting entirely from below, with Superman taking Doomsday up and away from camera, they mostly shoot from the side, and they track upward with the characters, so that we can see the detail of them, uh, which I think that detail is important because we will need to connect with Superman emotionally, both when he's hit with the nuke and later when he recovers in the sunlight. And by shooting this from the side and tracking up with them, we also get to experience as an audience the atmosphere thinning out and turning into near space. Of course, the most important thing in scene 67 is not actually Superman. It is the decision made by the president as he talks to Secretary Swanwick back at the Pentagon. Just as Superman heads upward with Doomsday, we cut inside the Pentagon, where they are monitoring the situation, and they have Superman and Doomsday plotted on a map of the city, uh, and they have a map of the city and the atmosphere above. And Major Ferris says that they've cleared the city, and Swanwick draws the logical conclusion that Superman is taking Doomsday into space. With Superman taking Doomsday out of the stratosphere and into the thermosphere, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs immediately says, we can go straight to Key Red. From this, we can infer that the chairman, and probably others too, had already been thinking about using nuclear weapons on Doomsday. They probably started thinking about nukes right after they saw how ineffective conventional weapons were. But those first considerations of nukes probably ended with the idea that they couldn't do it so long as Doomsday was still in Metropolis, where there would be hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties. But now, the main drawback to using a nuke has just been removed by Superman flying Doomsday up hundreds of miles. So, of course, they're going to think about the nukes again, uh, with the chairman being the main character who's calling for the nukes explicitly. And speaking of the chairman, I think there might be a slight little Justice League Universe discontinuity here. Uh, But maybe uh, someone else can check this for me. In BVS, this character is listed as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he is played by Greg Voiland. 
But in Suicide Squad, there is also a character listed as the chairman, and I assumed that that was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, but he was played by Aiden Devine. So it would have been cool to have the same actor in both roles, but that's not what we got. And it may not actually be a discontinuity because it is technically possible that the chairman was replaced between the time of BVS and the time of Suicide Squad. That's unlikely, but it is possible. Anyway, this chairman says that they can go to Key Red, which means a nuclear strike. And Alessandro also noticed here that the color red has a special meaning in Superman lore, because a red sun weakens kryptonite. And indeed, that is what's going to happen eventually with the nuclear strike. It's going to weaken Superman quite a bit. Swanwick reacts forcefully to the idea of a nuclear strike, though. He says, not yet. Are you crazy? It's pretty bold, calling the chairman crazy, but it's an intense situation and they need to be able to speak their minds frankly, which is what they're doing. And Swanwick is not actually taking a stance against nukes entirely, he just says, not yet, because Superman is still there with Doomsday. The chairman responds, they're high enough that we can nuke them without casualties. Importantly, the filmmakers actually cut off of the chairman in the middle of this line. They cut to Ferris so that we can see her face as the chairman is saying casualties. And Ferris looks right over at Swanwick with concern on her face. This is why it was important that Ferris and Swanwick were both present in these scenes, because they actually have a personal relationship with Superman from Man of Steel. So it is very different for them than it is with the other military leaders or the president. Those people don't have personal connections with Superman, but the personal connections of Ferris and Swanwick and the implicit dynamics that they bring to the scene are really great for linking Man of Steel and Batman v Superman together. And it's also great for giving a fairly straightforward scene more of an emotional punch. We are going to see those emotions again later, even without lines, as Ferris and Swanwick get reaction shots as the nuke is flying up, and again later after the blast. Moreover, the personal connections speak to one of the main themes of the movie. In particular, it shows that people who actually know Superman personally are not swayed by the media and the false narratives like the masses are. Swanwick, Ferris, Lois, and Martha. These characters are inoculated against Lex's efforts to defame Superman, and these people aren't so easily swept up in the public protests and angry sentiments. This idea that personal knowledge and first-hand knowledge inoculates you against rumor and speculation, it also speaks to our real world, where media and alternative media outlets, or rich billionaires, in our world can paint refugees as dangerous killers, or immigrants as criminals, or Muslims as terrorists, or trans people as perverts. But those biased narratives don't work at all on people who actually have personal relationships with refugees, immigrants, Muslims, or trans people. So that's why Swanwick sticks up for Superman, and does his job advising the president by leaning toward the phone and saying, one casualty, Mr. President, Superman. At this point, it's now up to the president. After a brief pause, the president makes his call, saying, God have mercy on us all. Just like back in Wayne Tower at the beginning of the movie with Jack, here we also have an explicit appeal to God right before a moment of destruction. And in this movie, Superman is often symbolically associated with God. So if we think about the substitution here, God have mercy on us all, the president is asking for God's mercy, but we can also think about Superman's mercy. The public has basically been hoping that Superman would remain merciful. 
And if mankind nukes Superman, but he survives, then mankind is really going to have to hope that he stays merciful rather than being angry that they nuked him. And of course, as we'll see later, Superman doesn't hold a grudge at all, even for a moment. He doesn't mind that they nuked him along with Doomsday. And after Superman recovers, he immediately goes back down to try to keep helping. So there's no animosity that he has toward mankind or the president. Superman is truly merciful and selfless. And by the way, the voice of the president is played by Patrick Wilson. He will next be in Aquaman as Orm, Aquaman's brother. And Wilson also worked in the past with Snyder on Watchmen. So anyway, the president calls for the nuclear strike. And I like how right after his order, we immediately cut to frantic action because the president's word is decisive. Soldiers run through as an alarm sounds and they turn their synchronized keys as we see Ferris make the sign of the Catholic cross. Again, a prayer by humans calling out to God when things are going beyond their control. And we get an intense shot of Swanwick as he looks on. The president gives the final order to fire, and then we get another shot of the map of the city with the radar displaying the layers above the skyline. These layers, and the larger and larger spheres of the atmosphere that we've been talking about, they reminded us of Dante's Divine Comedy. Alessandro talked about the Divine Comedy back in our episode on scenes 55 through 58, and Dante wrote about heaven as being made up of concentric spheres. Here, in the heavens above earth, the outer atmosphere, we are going to get a link between Dante's heaven and Dante's inferno, as doomsday will fall from the heavens back down to a fiery earth. This might also connect to paradise lost and Satan's fall from the heavens. The shot of the map also works as a transitional tool in the movie uh, because it preps us to cut back outside of the Pentagon. We see the nuclear missile being launched and roaring upward through the clouds, and so the nuke is on its way. Now, critics of the movie have said it was stupid to launch the nuclear missile because Superman seemed to have it under control. Uh, The government should have just let Superman continue into space without interfering. But there are a couple of problems with this critique. One problem is that people are making unfounded assumptions about Superman, and another problem is that people are unfairly evaluating the president's decision. First of all, audience members may be relying on information from previous versions of Superman that we do not know still apply to this version of Superman. Yes, previous incarnations of Superman have flown all through space, no problem. So it seems like Superman should be able to take Doomsday all the way out as far as he wants and throw him into deep space or something like that. But we don't actually know if this version of Superman can fly into deep space. We've only seen him in the lower parts of the thermosphere, and definitely we've never seen him beyond the exosphere. He may not be able to survive out where there's no oxygen left at all. And it's also very possible that his flight powers might not work out in deep space. In the Justice League movie universe, Superman's flight powers seem to operate by manipulating gravity in the local space right around him. But if he's in deep space, then the Earth's gravitational pull would be very weak, and maybe that would inhibit his gravity-based flight powers. Or maybe he needs objects or at least air molecules around his body to push against as he's flying. In the thermosphere, where we've seen him flying, he would still have some air molecules, but he wouldn't have those molecules out in deep space. In the movie, when we see him flying and pushing Doomsday even further out, he is still in near space or the upper atmosphere, not out in deep space, where he would have to actually go to send Doomsday safely away from Earth. 
Now, I'm not saying that this Superman definitely cannot fly in deep space. I'm just saying that we don't know if he can. If, in fact, he can fly in deep space, then even in that case, we can't be sure how he would dispose of Doomsday, because Doomsday may also be able to eventually learn to fly out there, and so he could return to Earth as a threat. Thus, if the president thinks he has a way to kill Doomsday, that seems like a much more definitive solution than hoping Superman can fly in deep space and hoping that Doomsday never can. The critics of the nuclear strike also aren't judging the president fairly. The question is not, was firing the nuke the perfect thing to do? The question actually should be, was that a realistic thing for people to do in that position? Is it plausible that the president and the military would fire the nuclear warhead? I think it is very plausible, because for them, they're thinking the nuclear warhead is their one ace in the hole to defeat Doomsday, the biggest weapon that is within their control. And when they see the chance to use it, they jump on it. Maybe this was the wrong decision, but it is a realistic one, because they will want to do something rather than just sitting back and hoping for the best. This is similar to Superman later with the kryptonite spear. Sure, one option with the spear would be to throw it to Wonder Woman, but we don't know if that would have turned out well, and it would be hard for someone like Superman, who is a man of action, to defer the most crucial action to someone else rather than trying to do it himself. It's plausible that Superman would choose to wield the spear, even if it's not the perfect or the only course of action. And here with the president, it's very plausible that he would try to fire it because he feels like this is his one chance to do something that's within his power. So back to the nuke, the only reason the government would not fire the nuke would be if they knew with certainty that Superman had Doomsday under control. But how could the government know that Superman had Doomsday under control? They can't know that. And the fact is, he didn't have him perfectly under control, because ultimately Superman needed the kryptonite to kill Doomsday. In addition, there was still the open question of trusting Superman, given the political storm surrounding him along with the uncertainty of his complicitness in the uh, couple of attacks. Keep in mind, too, that the government was getting their information at this time from CNN, which showed Doomsday coming from the Kryptonian scout ship. So this, too, could have caused doubt as to Superman's role in unleashing the beast. While the government may not want to believe Superman is guilty, uh, they don't really know for sure what Superman's role is in all this, and he is still an illegal alien who can't be controlled, and the priority of the government is the safety of its citizens. Given current events and the overall climate of fear about outsiders, the president's actions in Batman v Superman aren't far-fetched at all. Also on this topic, we can think about other possibilities of stopping Doomsday if Superman wasn't able to, or if the nukes didn't work. One BVS fan, Superbro, over on the Man of Steel Answers website, wondered what would have happened if they couldn't actually stop Doomsday here. What would have been Lex's plan after that? Superbro said that maybe Lex would have recruited the Justice League himself and formed them together to stop Doomsday, and then Lex would try to become the head of the League, so long as Superman was dead and people hadn't figured out that Lex was the one behind all the events of BVS. But Doc, from Man of Steel Answers, disagreed with Superbro's idea about Lex. He said that Lex didn't actually care to stop Doomsday, nor Darkseid after that, because Lex would have felt he had already proved his philosophical point about the ugliness and brutality of godlike beings. Now, Alessandro and Doc don't exactly see eye to eye on this. Alessandro's position is that Lex thought he could control Doomsday, 
and that Lex didn't find out about Darkseid until after Doomsday was unleashed. Alessandro thinks there's still a connection to the prior versions of Lex Luthor who cares about humanity and who is trying to stick up for humanity against the intrusion of the metahumans. Lex wants to be humanity's hero, and proving his philosophical point is not really about God and power so much as it is about turning the public against superpowered beings. As for me, I can see both interpretations, and they both have supporting evidence in the movie, both Doc's interpretation that's more philosophical and Alessandro's interpretation that's a little bit closer to previous incarnations in the comics. But looking strictly at BVS and not at prior versions of Lex, I probably side a little bit more toward Doc's position. I didn't actually see any genuine care and concern for humanity on the part of Lex. I think anything that kind of looked like care for humanity was just a false front. I also didn't see any clear evidence that Lex intended to ride in as the hero to save the day, like he has done in some past stories. What I saw the most from Lex in BVS was that he cannot stand hero worship or someone like his father, or like Superman, or like God, who is held up in great esteem by the public. Lex's worldview requires him to tear down anyone like that, tear them down both physically and in the eyes of the public. In the early scenes with the Senators, he is trying to assess the exact standing of Superman in the eyes of the government, and he is also trying to see who might be his allies in tearing down Superman's reputation. Lex finds that Senator Finch is definitely not an ally in this effort because she sees through him. But Lex does find Wallace and Bruce who have some anger and hatred that Lex can use. With respect to Doomsday, I think Doomsday was Lex's chance to play God, which is probably part of why Lex subconsciously hates God, because Lex isn't God. Um, And he got to play God in a way that emphasized that power cannot be innocent. He created a monster that would cause people to appropriately recoil in horror, as he thought they should from Superman and from God, too. In terms of controlling Doomsday, I tend to go with the theatrical version as my main version, where there doesn't seem to be any explicit indication that Lex thinks he will control Doomsday. Blood of My Blood is more of a religious reference and the idea of Lex as a creator, not an indication that he will perfectly control Doomsday's behavior. But anyway, the government doesn't know anything about how Lex created Doomsday or what Lex's ultimate plans are. So in terms of the government thinking about stopping Doomsday, a nuclear strike is a plausible option, and if that didn't work, they probably at that point would have figured out what Lex was doing in the scout ship and would have interrogated him or compelled him to try to help them find a way to stop Doomsday. If, like we have speculated, Lex actually did keep at least a little bit of kryptonite for himself, then maybe they could have tried to use that to defeat Doomsday. In terms of the actual events of the movie, though, the nuclear missile sails upward and then separates from its initial booster, firing forward with a secondary booster towards Superman and Doomsday. Doomsday has put up a bit of a fight against Superman, but Superman is much more agile in the air and is able to punch Doomsday farther upward and then grabs him by the head as he tries to continue their flight up and away from the planet. Superman notices the missile coming toward him, and he must figure out right away what it all means. He doesn't seem to ever show disgust or frustration with the government for firing the nuke. He just takes it in stride and actually does what he can to force Doomsday right into the nuke. Now, I don't think enough credit has been given to Superman for this action in BVS. This is really a sacrifice just as much as his later sacrifice at the end of the movie. 
Superman here with the nuke did not actually know if he could survive a nuclear blast, and yet he still threw himself right into it to make sure that it hit Doomsday full on. If you're thinking, yes, Superman can survive a nuclear explosion, then you are either guilty of hindsight bias, you're thinking that he did survive the nuclear blast, um, but that's different than knowing beforehand that he was going to survive it. Or you are assuming too much about what Superman knows, like if you are assuming that Superman must know he's able to survive nuclear blasts. There is actually no way that Superman would have known ahead of time that he can survive a nuclear attack. He never could have tested something to that level. And even though he knows he's bulletproof and he's able to withstand drone strikes and stuff like that, it's a whole different story to talk about a nuclear attack. I'm pretty positive this is the first time he is being hit with a nuclear warhead. So Superman does this incredibly selfless act of throwing himself and Doomsday into the nuke. The music building up to this moment is really poignant, a slowed down and richly orchestrated version of the Superman flight theme, alternating between a full octave interval and a seventh interval, which is just a half step below. And the choir is a nice touch here, adding to the drama of the moment. And I also love the sound of the roar that reverberates into the distance right as the missile hits Doomsday, and we cut away back down to Earth's surface. There's a huge spherical blast and glow of the upper atmosphere nuclear explosion. These kinds of nuclear detonations have actually been conducted by the United States back in the 1960s. They were called the fishbowl events. And interestingly, the nukes were delivered into space by missiles called Thor missiles. One of the nukes was detonated 250 miles above the planet, so right about in the middle of the thermosphere, at the same altitude as the uh, International Space Station flies now. Because the atmosphere is so thin up there in the thermosphere, it didn't produce the typical mushroom cloud when they did these tests. Instead, it produced a huge glowing spherical light show with auroras. Actually, I don't need to try to describe it because those high atmosphere nuclear detonations basically looked like what they showed in Batman v Superman. The biggest real test was called Starfish Prime, and there are photos of it, and it looks like those photos were probably used as a direct visual inspiration for the BVS team because BVS has this nuclear explosion that looks very realistic. We see Batman looking up at the explosion, and he says, Oh God. So again, we get the constant religious overtones and the linkage between God and Superman. Batman is reacting not only to the explosion, but now he also has concern for Superman as an individual, who he has recently come to appreciate. Like Swanwick and Ferris, now we can count Batman amongst the people who actually have some understanding and personal interactions with Superman. And of course, we also get a reaction shot from Lois, who has the closest and deepest relationship with Superman. She very well may think at this point that Superman is dead. And if you stop for a moment to think about Lois, she really goes through an emotional roller coaster during this one night. She isn't sure where Superman is, she figures out Lex's scheme, then she's almost killed, but then she is thrilled because Superman is back. Then she is worried because Superman has to go fight Batman. Then she sees Superman defeated and about to be killed. She's able to get there in time to save him, but then he has to go try to stop Lex. Then she feels right here in this moment that Superman may have been killed by the nuclear explosion. And then later this night, she will be happy when she sees that he isn't killed, and they have a quiet moment together as they get the spear. But then, after all of that, he actually will go off to sacrifice himself to defeat Doomsday, and she will end up cradling his dead body.
If you have even an ounce of empathy, you have to really feel for Lois in these last sequences of the movie. Here in scene 67, Lois not only sees the nuclear explosion, but she also sees something crashing back down to Earth, but we can't quite tell yet what it is. So we cut back into the Pentagon, where Major Ferris helps answer that question. She says that Projectile 1 has landed on Stryker's Island. The Air Force signals officer comments that Stryker's Island is uninhabited. So this is probably the one uh, comment here where Warner Brothers went too far in compensating for the backlash against Man of Steel. Earlier, Anderson Cooper said the workday was over and the area around Doomsday was basically empty, and Batman said that the Gotham port is abandoned, but I don't think we needed the third explicit comment about a lack of civilian casualties. Now, that's my opinion, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe without this third comment, people would have still found a way to criticize the movie for too much destruction or too much collateral damage. It might have been a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situation for Warner Brothers. There's either too many casualties or they get flack for saying that there aren't casualties. I personally don't think it was a problem to have this quick line, but I just don't think it was necessary either. And speaking of Stryker's Island, this is a location that is based on the comic book universe. Stryker's Island is an island prison near Metropolis, kind of like Riker's Island is for New York. Stryker's Island is often used to house Superman villains, but in this movie universe, it's just an uninhabited island. Next, we see Projectile 2 disappear from the monitor, and Ferris says that Projectile 2 has no apparent re-entry. The president asks what they mean by Projectile 2, and Swanwick has to turn back toward the phone, just like he did when he was trying to appeal for Superman's life. But this time, he is breaking the news that Projectile 2 was Superman. And I personally love this next little moment of acting from Harry Lennox as Swanwick. He lowers his head at the thought of having lost Superman, but then an officer off-screen says, Sir, and I just love how Lennox plays off the reaction in a truly reactive way with his eyebrows lifting first, and then the eyebrows sort of pull his head up with them. And he's looking over, and you can just see that he is hoping for a moment that they've gotten a new read on Projectile 2. Maybe Superman is still alive. I'm impressed how Lennox could capture those subtle emotions and that shift in just a quick shot like that. And an inferior actor would have given away with their body language the fact that they were expecting the next line. Like, you can see with an inferior actor that they were preparing to look up once the guy said, Sir. But with Lennox, every time I watch it, it seems like he is truly going downward into a bowed head moment of silence, and then he is truly surprised and reacts to the Sir by looking up. I really appreciate small moments of masterful acting like that. So anyway, we end up finding out that Projectile 1 is moving, and so Doomsday is still alive. Our listener, Angelo, had a few thoughts about rebirth and falling back to Earth. Quote, BVS even seems to allude to biblical truths about afterlife in general. Zod was a villain in Man of Steel, and in the afterlife is born as a deformed demonic being by way of Doomsday. And Superman dies, too. So in Justice League, I'm certain there will be some reference to him coming back, reborn truly as he was, but perhaps even changed and more powerful. Plus, there's the scene in Man of Steel where Clark and Zod fall to Earth. But in BVS, instead of falling back to Earth, only Doomsday crashes, and Clark stays in space, or in heaven, as it were, and he regenerates. A lot of clever, almost eschatological foreshadowing by Zack, end quote. So thanks, Angelo. It is a nice connection back to Man of Steel and possibly forward to a rebirth in Justice League. 
And now that we've seen Doomsday's literal fall, Alessandro wanted to mention a couple more things about Paradise Lost by Milton. Doomsday's fall from the heavens alludes to Paradise Lost, in which Satan falls from God's grace and is banished to hell. This also harkens back to Gustav Dorr's illustration for Paradise Lost, which shares similarities with and likely inspired the painting in Lex's house. When discussing that painting, Lex says that devils come from the sky. In the long term, that was probably a foreshadowing of Darkseid, but in BVS itself, it also foreshadowed this moment of Doomsday falling from above. Having been hit by a nuke, Doomsday is now ready for his next stage of development. The camera moves smoothly around him as bones burst out of his back, and as he looks at his own body, and bones are popping out of his arms too, and he punches the ground, getting a gauge on his new strength. Gravity also seems to be affected near Doomsday, because we can see large rocks floating around him, so it's like a bigger version of the dust that rises when Superman takes off for flight. Then, Doomsday erupts into another energy blast. There's a boosh effect. Uh, This time, it has an added blast of heat vision, or more like heat face. This shows the audience that Doomsday has grown more powerful. And the solar flare blast goes up into space, and the camera goes with it, bringing us back up to check in on Superman. We first see Superman's hand and wrist, accentuated against the horizon. And right away, we can see that something is wrong. It looks very skinny and sickly. The camera continues panning, and we get this ghostly gray version of Superman, with his suit still intact, but his body obviously in really bad shape. It is a really striking image, and the light hitting him on just one side of the face, with shadows under his eyes, it really emphasizes the moment. This is a clear homage to the Dark Knight Returns graphic novel, where Superman also got hit by a nuclear missile, although in that case it was a Russian missile. But the art in The Dark Knight Returns also has some really striking panels of an emaciated Superman who eventually recovers. There is also a malnourished and emaciated Superman in the Flashpoint story by Jeff Johns, but in that case it's from being locked up away from the sun, rather than from a nuclear explosion. Now we do want to emphasize that Superman sacrificed himself for humanity two separate times in this movie. But what we mean by that is he was willing to die, and he put his life at risk two times. We do not mean that he actually died twice. In fact, he only died once at the end of the movie. Right here, with the nuke, he was damaged and weakened, but not actually killed. And you don't have to take our word for it. Zack Snyder himself actually explained in an interview after the movie was released that Superman didn't die from the nuke. He was just severely injured. But Snyder says Superman does actually die at the end of the movie. He dies, but it's just that his cells don't degenerate, and that's why we'll be able to have him come back later. So hopefully this clears up some misconceptions. Some people think Superman died both times, and he is just able to come back from the dead both times. And other people think that Superman never actually died in either case. He just gets close to dying both times, but he can recover. So both of these things are actually wrong. He did not die from the nuke, but he does die when he's weakened by kryptonite and Doomsday stabs him through the chest. In the first case, he just simply recovers, as shown on screen. And in the second case, he dies and will be reborn somehow in Justice League. Now, for the people who think Superman never dies, we just want to say that, yes, Superman can die. He's not immortal. For example, if you rip his head off or pull his torso apart, 
he's not going to survive because he needs his organs to function just like we do. The thing is, for Superman, it's very hard to pull off his head or puncture his skin or break his bones. It's hard to do that, but it is possible. And of course, kryptonite makes it easier to do. And as Emil Hamilton explains in The Death and Life of Superman story, Superman's body is like a solar battery that collects energy from the sun. So as Superman exerts this energy without being recharged, he will eventually be drained and become killable. But as far as the Pentagon knows, Doomsday now seems to be unkillable. He just survived a direct nuclear strike, which was the most powerful weapon that the Pentagon had at its disposal. And not only are the attacks ineffective, but they actually seem to make Doomsday more powerful, as Swanwick says. This is the sort of conundrum that also happens in the comics with the Superman villain Parasite, who can absorb the powers of those who try to fight Parasite. And Parasite was featured in Jeff Johns' book Superman's Secret Origin, a graphic novel which has had some clear influence on the Justice League universe. But back in BVS, as things are getting pretty bleak in the Pentagon, Swanwick is feeling like he may have lost Superman and not actually made any gains in fighting Doomsday. And the president actually then calls Swanwick by his first name, Calvin, which emphasizes how desperate the leaders feel at this moment. Swanwick calls Doomsday unkillable, which is a perfect moment to cut to Batman. Batman as a character is known for finding some way or coming up with some plan to do what seems impossible. Batman here is flying over to Stryker's Island to assess the situation with Doomsday. He sees him still alive amongst the destruction of the island, and now Doomsday uses his heat face in a much more controlled way. He tracks and almost hits the Batwing as Batman ducks below a hill just in time. This brings us into scene 68, where we get to see the payoff of the Batwing vehicle. It wasn't really crucial earlier uh, for the warehouse scene. We saw it a little bit, but it wasn't really central to the warehouse scene. Um, But they showed it to us there as a setup for this scene, where Batman needed to be able to lure Doomsday over to Gotham. Batman talks to Alfred, which allows us to hear the last little bits of exposition that are needed before the big Trinity showdown with Doomsday. Batman puts it together that a Kryptonian monster will probably be affected by Kryptonite in the same way as a Kryptonian, and so the Kryptonite spear will be the key to defeating Doomsday. All the preparation Bruce had done earlier in the movie with that big montage and all of his dark journey toward revenge and trying to do something that matters may actually finally get to be put to good use after all. This may actually be a thing that he can do that will matter. Alfred is well aware of Bruce's entire emotional journey and Alfred shows a bit of frustration when he says that Kryptonian weapons might kill Doomsday if you had any left. This is basically a little jab or a told-you-so type of comment from Alfred because Alfred had tried to talk Bruce out of using the kryptonite against Superman, but Bruce wasn't listening back then. And now that there is an actual threat from a real enemy, Alfred is wishing that they had all their kryptonite resources available. Batman says that he does have one round of the kryptonite gas, uh, so that's a clear reminder to the audience to be on the lookout for that round at the climax of the battle. But the main thing will be the kryptonite spear which is, of course, the main answer to the question of how to defeat Doomsday. And by the way, I really love the map that Alfred is looking at in this scene. It shows Batman's actual flight trajectory, and it seems to match up perfectly with what we see with the Batwing. And it also maps the altitude and the cities of Metropolis and Gotham, so that we can see how everything fits together, with Stryker's Island in the middle. So that's a very cool detail. I like that map a lot. 
Batman then says that he's going to get Doomsday to chase him back over to the Port of Gotham where the spear is. Some people have said that Batman should have just left Doomsday where he was and gone to get the spear by himself. But there is no reason to assume that Doomsday would just stay there on the island. We saw before that Doomsday's attention is easily grabbed, like with the helicopters. And he can jump really great distances. And we'll see in a second that he can even jump all the way off the island. So if Doomsday was left alone, it is possible, an actual probable, that he would go and attack an actual populated area of one of the cities. But by bringing Doomsday along, Batman feels like he is maintaining responsibility over Doomsday, and he is bringing him to an abandoned port rather than to a populated area. We see another Batwing strafing run, like we did outside the warehouse, and he does get Doomsday to jump after him, and Doomsday fires another heat face blast uh, as he jumps. The light from Doomsday's heat face is used for a match cut with the rising sun up in space. As our eyes adjust to the light, we start to see the silhouette of Superman with his arms out wide and his cape flowing in space. Then we cut to the front of Superman, and we get this beautifully epic shot of Superman healing in the sunlight. The camera pushes in slowly as Superman gradually heals and his chest fills out. The music uses the choir again to emphasize the moment when his red eyes open. It is a truly remarkable and memorable visual moment. This is also the perfect place to sequence and to put Superman's recovery in the sequence of events here, because we see Superman heal, and then we're going to see Batman get in trouble. So at that time when Batman's in trouble, we are thinking that Superman is the one who will arrive just in time to save the day. But it turns out to actually be Wonder Woman. That little misdirect is one of many things that makes Wonder Woman's appearance so effective. But before we get there, we have a few shots where we see Doomsday completing his leap and still firing his heat face at Batman. He actually wings the Batwing uh, right at the end, and Batman is rocked inside his cockpit and crashes up against a brick building. Even before the Batwing comes to rest, Batman is already trying to unbuckle his harness and get out of there. But Doomsday slides down the side of a building and slides right up to Batman. The music cuts out as Batman looks up and realizes he can't really get out of this. He delivers a swear that you're allowed to get away with in a PG-13 movie as long as you don't have too many of them. And I think this line from Batman works as a humorous line for a few reasons. First, it is a line that happens at the end of Batman's fight with Doomsday, not in the middle of a fight. Second, we as the audience know that Batman is not actually going to die. So it is not making light of an actual life or death situation. Also, we just saw Superman heal, so now we feel a little bit more relaxed knowing Superman's okay. We know Batman's going to be okay. So this line works as a moment of, of humor because there's not a real threat that's actually happening. And third... It is funny, because Batman has been in this angry and vengeful funk for basically the whole movie, and it humanizes him and shows a bit of a soft underbelly that he would swear just like the rest of us if he were about to get blasted in the face. If he had had a bunch of funny one-liners all the way along before this, this line here would have been watered down. But instead, this is one of his only funny lines, and it ends up really emphasizing the moment. And after the fact, after this whole thing, it may have been good for Batman to have this near-death experience because it might have helped him to reevaluate his choices and rededicate himself at the end of the movie. So anyway, Batman puts up his arms and grits his teeth and Doomsday fires another blast straight at him, 
but we see a blur drop down from the sky just in time. So that is our analysis, and we now have Wonder Woman's arrival into the final fight, so we will continue that momentum into our next episode. And speaking of Wonder Woman, I was re-watching BVS in its entirety recently, and it really hit me this viewing, uh, just how great that photo was from 1918. Wonder Woman's posture and facial expression are just fantastic in that photo. And the way they positioned everyone else around here really emphasizes that she actually is the toughest one in the group. Even amidst hardened soldiers, she really looks the toughest and like the others will defer to her. And in this viewing that I had of the movie, it just really hit home how truly exceptional it is to have a war photo of active soldiers with a woman standing right in the middle. It's a role that, in movies and in reality, we just have not allowed women to hold. Not because they can't, but because society has sidelined them. It is so great to have Wonder Woman stepping up and taking that central role. And I'm also glad that Wonder Brothers has continued in that spirit of the first photo by also featuring Wonder Woman in the center of many other formations since then. And it's also great that they've included her fully in the merchandising. It all comes together to get me really excited for the Wonder Woman movie this summer. All right, so before we close, we want to make an announcement about our special episode on March 25th. We are planning to complete our BVS scene-by-scene analysis before March 25th, so that on the 25th, we can do a retrospective episode that looks back over the film as a whole. And we want to invite you, the listeners, to look back over the film with us. So what we are asking is for you to identify one of the main things that you love about Batman v Superman, and to record a short audio clip describing what you love about it. Maybe it's a particular scene that you think is really great and you can tell us why you love that scene. Or maybe it's a certain character or certain character arc you can tell us about. Or maybe it's something about the creators or anything at all, really. But please try to key in on something specific that you love about BVS and then tell us about that. We don't really want to hear your list of 15 things that you love about it, but we would love to hear from 15 of you about one main thing that each of you loved. If you are able to audio record yourself, that would be great. And please include your name in the clip. In terms of length, short and sweet is totally fine, but you can also go for like one to two minutes if your love requires a bit of explanation. But try to aim for less than two minutes so that we can include multiple people. And please send your audio files to me at my personal email address, ottensam at att.net. That's O-T-T-E-N-S-A-M at att.net. If you'd rather not record actual audio, that's fine. You can also send a written email message to ottensam at att.net, and we will still try to include you. But we are hoping for some audio files so that you can be heard in your own voice. So just to recap, we want to hear from you about one of the main things that you loved about BVS. Uh, This whole episode that we're going to be making can be like a love letter to the creators who did such a great job and took some real risks on this movie. We want to publish the episode on March 25th, so give us time to edit it and please submit your input to ottensam at att.net by March 15th. That's March 15th for submissions, please. We're really looking forward to hearing from you, and thanks for listening. Shoutouts to Man of Steel Answers and the Suicide Squadcast, and thanks again.